I invite you to take your copy of the Holy Scriptures and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31 this morning. This summer as a church, we are giving our attention to church matters. And if your pastors were to write epistles or, or letters to the saints of God here in Plymouth, what would we write and what would we say? We charted out a schedule of subjects that we would highlight from the scriptures, matters that address who we are as a church and what we do as a church. We began in Ephesians chapter one where the church is described as those who are in Christ to the praise of his glory. And I hope that is your personal testimony today as well as our corporate testimony, a corporate description of who we are as a church. Then from Hebrews chapter 10, I made the case that the church those in Christ must necessarily gather together for the benefit of one another and all the more so as we see the day of Jesus' return approaching. And I hope that we are gathered here together this morning to stir up love and good works among one another and to exhort or encourage one another in the faith. This morning now I point you to 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul pictures the unity and the diversity of the human body to illustrate the unity and the diversity among the members of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse number 12. For as the body is one and has many members but all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. If you look at verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. From 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31, I've prepared a message titled The Church, Unity and Diversity. Let's pause for prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have just now to open your holy word and to read about the church, specifically the the unity and the diversity that exists among us here in this place. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will illumine the scripture text to us, teach us, convict us, change us because of our study of it. I thank you, Lord, for Fourth Baptist Church. I thank you for the variety and the diversity, the men, the women, the children, the, the families, married, single, old, and young, I I thank you for each that is in Christ. Together, may we demonstrate all that you would have us to, to be as a church, for I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of metaphors in the New Testament that are used to describe the church, and in no particular order, I would suggest to you a few of these metaphors. First, the church is called the house of God. The familiar phrase, perhaps, that, that you understand is the household of faith or the, the household of God. The church is also called the temple of God. We are the building of the living God, living stones built up to be a, a temple. The church is called the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we understand, even as Pastor Dan alluded to, that the family aspect of, of the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. And someday we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
in heaven upon the rapture of the church. The church is also then called the body of Christ, as in the text before us. And there are other metaphors for the church, like flock and field and branches and priesthood. But this morning, the image is of a body, a human body, as the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12. How does that work? It begins with the formation of the body. The formation of the body, verse number 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, Gentiles, whether slave or free men, all have been made to drink into one spirit. It begins the formation with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the term baptism of the Spirit is a term that's misunderstood, so allow me to explain. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at conversion when the Holy Spirit of God gives the believer new life. We call that regeneration. We call it being born again, John chapter three. Every believer that has been born again by the Spirit of God has experienced this once for all baptism of the Holy Spirit, making them part of the body of Christ, the church. Now be careful to know that this is not water baptism. Water baptism has no part in conversion. This is spirit baptism, which is all of conversion, But many have erred in explaining the baptism of the Spirit as an extra work of God's grace or a second blessing that is evidenced by some external ecstatic experience or expression after conversion. But that is exactly not what Paul is teaching here. He says that there is one Spirit and there is one body. Ephesians 4 verse number 5 tells us there is one baptism and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places us into the body of Christ, the church, at conversion. And this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have been baptized by the Spirit of God. You are now in Christ. You are part of the church. You are part of the body of Christ. Now, there's another term that's also found elsewhere in the New Testament that is often confused with the baptism of the Spirit, and that is letter B, the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, and I would cite Ephesians 5, verse 18, which says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit has nothing to do with salvation, everything to do with sanctification, The filling of the Spirit has nothing to do with our conversion, everything to do with control. The filling of the Spirit is not a part of the formation of the body, but is part of the function of the body. And as we yield to the Spirit on a daily basis, we experience the filling of the Spirit. On the back of your outline, I've copied a chart from Charles Ryrie that compares and contrasts the baptism of the Spirit with the filling of the Spirit. And this is so helpful. I've given it to you previously, but it's helpful to have. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs in each believer's life just one time at conversion, while the filling of the Spirit occurs repeatedly in a believer's life. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a matter of salvation. Filling of the Spirit is a means of sanctification. Baptism of the Spirit is a matter of conversion. Filling of the Spirit is a matter of control. The baptism is the formation of the body of Christ. The filling is the function of the body of Christ. The baptism never occurred before Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, while the filling of the Spirit did occur in the Old Testament. 
Baptism is true of all believers. Filling of the Spirit is not true of all believers at all times. Baptism of the Spirit cannot be undone or reversed. Filling can be lost or surrendered if we walk in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Baptism results in a position. Filling results in a power. Baptism of the Spirit is an act of the Holy Spirit of God. Filling of the Spirit is a is a good consequence of the yieldedness of man. And so it's important that we understand these terms for they've created some confusion and consternation among Christians. The formation of the body of Christ is because of the baptism of the Spirit. In fact, I would ask for you to circle letter A, there's some point letter A in the front of your notes. The formation of the body is their letter A, the baptism of the Spirit. This is a position and a positional explanation. Now let me give you a practical application, and that's number two, the function. The function of the body. How does this body of baptized, spirit-baptized believers function? Look with me at the scripture text, verse number 14. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? That's a rhetorical question. No. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? A rhetorical question, no. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And so regarding the the function of the body of Christ, Paul addressed two pervasive attitudes among the Corinthians, and this is where it gets really practical for us. If you say, but Pastor Matt, I, I feel like I've heard this before. You have, and it bears repeating. I feel like this is a familiar text. It is, because it's so memorable, but this is critically important to the function of, of the church. And the attitudes that the Corinthians exhibited began with first an insignificant spirit, an insignificant spirit within them. In verse 15, if the human foot was to compare itself to the human hand, the human foot might con- conclude that, it, that it's insignificant. Our poor feet are, are wrapped in sweaty socks and crowded into a dark shoe. Whereas the hand, you see the hand is magnificent. I have eight wrist bones. I have five bones in my palm. There are 14 bones in my fingers. In fact, my two hands together command one quarter of all of the bones in my entire body. Each hand has thousands of nerve endings per square inch. My fingers will be extended and flexed some 25 million times during my life. And at least up to this point, they have not yet gotten tired. With the hand, some can play the piano. With the hand, some can type a a hundred words a minute. With the hand, some compensate for not seeing by reading Braille. And with the hands, some compensate for not speaking or hearing by using sign language. And with our hands, we we can feel the texture of soil and fabric. And with our hands, we can distinguish the different coins in our pockets. And each of our fingerprints are unique. Oh, to be a hand and not a foot. But consider this this morning. If I did not have my feet, I could not stand here and talk to you. If I did not have my big toe, I would fall over on my face. The foot is important. 
And then in verse 16, Paul continues with the the ear and, and the eye. If the human ear compared itself to the human eye, the ear might conclude that it's insignificant. Allow me to to read some here. The human eye has a dime-sized cornea to bend light rays into orderly patterns and a pupil to control the amount of light coming into the eye. It has a small lens surrounded by tiny but extremely strong muscles. It has a retina which, although covering less than a square inch, contains 137 million light-sensitive receptor cells. Of those 130 million are rod-shaped and control black and white vision. The rest are cone-shaped and control color vision. Messages are passed from the eye through the optic nerve to the brain and back again at a speed of about 300 miles per hour. Each transaction takes .002 seconds. Oh, to be an eye and not an ear. See, eyes are on the front of our faces Ears are on the sides of our heads. Eyes are often complimented. What beautiful eyes you have. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say, oh, what beautiful ears you have, right? (laughs) Not even little Red Riding Hood. She only said, what big ears you have to the wolf in grandma's house. Folks, really the illustration needs no explanation because it's, it's so clear. But God has sovereignly set the members of the human body to perform different duties and functions and none of them are insignificant. A body would not be a complete body without all of the diversity of its parts. And in the absence of a part, a body is handicapped or crippled or limited or maimed in some way. And so really, the verses 19 and 20 summarize the, the folly of, of the notion that, that Paul's presented. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would, be the, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. So let me make application of, of this illustration to our church body, the body of Christ. Some might say, Pastor Matt, you, you know, I'm really not an important part of this local church. In fact, I'm actually pretty insignificant. I don't preach or teach. I don't sing or, or play special music. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an Awana leader, not an usher. My name has never been in the bulletin. I'm insignificant. Okay. Do you give? A little. Do you fellowship? Well, I'm, I'm really not that outgoing. Do you worship together corporately and singing with the congregation? Well, sort of. Do you pray for others? But pastor, I'm I'm just a teenager. You're part of the body. But I'm I'm just retired. You're part of the, the body. And folks, I declare to you this morning that we are one local church with many members and there are no insignificant members as part of this local church or the church universal. We are the body of Christ. And this week in your small groups, in your home Bible fellowship meetings on Wednesday evenings, tease out the inferiority complex that we might adopt as insignificant members of the church. In the larger context of 1 Corinthians 12, the the Corinthians clamored for the best giftedness. And Paul says, it doesn't matter what your giftedness is. It doesn't matter how flashy you are. If you don't have love, then you're insignificant. If we were to cheat ahead to chapter 13, verse number two, and we're familiar with that that passage of scripture, you're, you're a zero, you're a nothing if you lack love. But there are no insignificant members 
But then in, in, in chapter 12, verses 14 to 20, Paul also addressed um, not just an insignificant spirit, he continues now to address an independent spirit. We come to verse 21. Look there. You, you see, some might feel inferior. There are others who feel superior. Verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. All right, it is absurd it's arrogant for one part of the body to say to, to the other, you're no good, you're not necessary, we can do without you. Unless you are a spleen or an appendix, I'm sure. Our bodies evidently can survive without a spleen or without an appendix. However, they are not worthless The spleen, do you know what the spleen does? The spleen filters blood and fights bad bacteria. The appendix, the appendix protects good bacteria in your guts. You say, okay, what about the tonsils? Perhaps many have have had their tonsils removed. The tonsils contain antibodies of the immune system and are part of the lymphatic system which helps fight infections. You say, Pastor Matt, how do you know so much? I have WebMD, right? (laughs) This is where this is coming from, right? A body can exist without some of the parts. In In fact, your body can exist without an arm or a leg or an eye, but to some degree the body suffers when there is a loss of a member. And we would never suggest that the body is better off without a body part, You may not have a spleen or an appendix or your tonsils. But your body is not better off by severing those members. In verses 23 and 24, if you're looking there, Paul says there are parts of the human body that are kept hidden for the sake of modesty, but those are in fact the most valuable. And and he's discreet, but we understand his reference. The parts of the body intended for procreation are not seen, but they give the greatest honor. They perform the most important miraculous functions. And so also it is with the body of Christ. Could it be that when all is said and done, that those members of our local church body here at Fourth Baptist who have labored in private will in fact be most exalted. For those who have performed publicly don't need any more attention or credit. And I think we understand the illustration. Simply put, folks, we need each other. And without each member of this church fellowship, we would malfunction as a body. And I, I declare zero tolerance for an independent spirit among us. And you can talk of that as well in your home Bible fellowship meetings. But, but why? Why these things? There's a purpose statement found in verse 25. That there should. So, so this is the purpose. That. So that. So that there should be no schism in the body or division perhaps is how your, body, your, your Bible reads but that the members should have the same care for one another. In fact, you could cross-reference this back to verse seven which we didn't read. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for here it is, the profit of all for the benefit of, of all. And so there is 
I would offer you number three, factions within the body. Now, you're familiar with Paul's first epistle, his first letter to the Corinthians. He repeatedly addressed divisions or schisms among the Corinthians. Beginning in chapter one, you remember there were contentions over their loyalties to different pastors or teachers among them. The Corinthians would boast, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. In this context, I'm of Pastor Matt or Pastor Dan or Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Jared or Pastor Marcio. Or we could continue. I'm of said favorite Bible teacher. I'm of Jim Hunter. Or I'm of favorite deacon. And I'm gonna start getting myself into trouble here naming, naming deacons. And, or I'm of, and, and we could just start naming names among us. And there were divisions and there were schisms, loyalties. And, and Paul rebuked that in chapter two. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in chapter six, 1 Corinthians six. They were taking each other to court. They were suing each other over civil matters. Chapter six and chapter 11, they were selfish and rude around the Lord's table. They were clamoring for the, the elements and, and for the food. Perhaps you've, you've been part of our Lord's table observance, Lord's supper observance, and, and, and we have this little routine and the, the pastors serve the deacons and the deacons serve the people and then they come back and we serve them and, it, and it's like a, like a, a well-oiled machine. Why, why do we do that? because of the error of 1 Corinthians 11. It was total chaos. It was a free-for-all. And then now in, in chapter 12, this context in chapter 13, the Corinthians were competing against each other for the, for the best giftedness and recognition of that, and they lacked love. So you know why schisms arise, divisions arise within a church? It's it's when one member is concerned about himself or herself above and beyond and before others. And the, there's complaining and there's criticism about the way things are or the way things should be done or, or, or such maybe one's agenda or idea or program wasn't accomplished in the way they thought it should happen. And, and uh, that's where there's factions in the body that there should be no schism in the body is there in verse 25. It's the consequences of an independent spirit. So guard yourself against an insignificant spirit, an inferiority complex, and an independent spirit. And I think we could discuss this on Wednesday evening as well in our home Bible fellowship groups. And, and perhaps you even have stories you can share of schisms in, in other churches perhaps you've been a part of or you've heard. Um, how do they develop? How are they corrected? Um, I'm grateful for the 14 years of, of the Morell family being part of Fourth Baptist Church. We've enjoyed great unity and peace, and I credit you all with that. I'm grateful for that. But this is how the, the, the body sometimes works now in verse 26, or I, I suppose I should say how it ought to work in verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honest, honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is the feelings of the body. Now, notice it doesn't say if one member suffers, all the members should suffer. The the fact of the matter is that we do suffer, and when there is sin among us, the body suffers. When there is the cancer of gossip among us, the body suffers. When there is pride of position or power or when there is selfishness with our time and money or preferences, the body suffers. 
When you hit your thumb with a hammer, your thumb hurts, and so does your arm, and so does your entire body. Impulses are sent to your brain, and your eyes start to water, your face twists up, your mouth says something, hopefully pure, right? It affects the whole body, just hitting your, your thumb with that hammer. But on the other hand, we rejoice when the body is honored or exalted, and in the Fourth Baptist Church family, when there's a new baby that's born, or there's a Christian marriage, or when one celebrates spiritual victory that's won, or one of our body finds a new job or enjoys healing from a hurt, we, we celebrate with the body. When one is joined to us in salvation and then in, in membership, we have a big membership service and we rejoice and we celebrate. These are the, the real feelings of, of the body. And then, Finally, number five, the fascination with the body. Look at at verse 27. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. This this is a key summary statement. It's the the source of my title, unity and diversity. Verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administration, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? These are rhetorical questions, no. Do we all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, 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 and no. The Holy Spirit distributes gifts to each member as he wills. Back in verse 11, God has set each member in the body as it pleases him. Verse number 18. But what happens? Inevitably, there is a fascination with a part of the body. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And, and really there's an implied you there you, you might insert in verse 31, but you earnestly desire the best gifts. The Corinthians were seeking exalted status through the exercise of better gifts. And Paul intended to correct that. It's like those men I've heard who form an in voluntary fascination with their their biceps and they stand in front of the mirror and and I've heard that some men will will strike a pose and flex right to to see their bicep their muscles and there's a fascination with with that but maybe there's something more important than a man's biceps or his his muscles maybe it's his mind that's unseen maybe it's his heart it's unseen. Paul says there is something more important than impressive giftedness on display, flexing muscles for all to see. Look at verse 31 again. But you earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And after all of the fascination with different body parts, Different functions of the body or spiritual gifts, of course, is is what's being addressed. Paul says there's something more excellent. And what is that? Well, if we were to keep reading 1 Corinthians 13, we know that would be love. So folks, I conclude here quickly with a, a very simple and similar illustration or analogy that has been given here in the scripture. We recognize that our cars and our computers and our household appliances consist of many different pieces and many different parts. And at times, there is a single component that breaks or fails or shuts down 
and the, the entire machine is then useless. So we call the repairman who diagnoses the problem and explains that there's a small electrical device, a little component that needs to be replaced, right? There's a little hidden part or piece that, that you've never heard of before that's broken and it costs so much. In fact, sometimes it costs as much as the entire object costs to replace your refrigerator, your washing machine, you, you name it. Have you experienced that? And that's the way it is with the members of a local church. When one member is down and out or missing or malfunctioning, the cost is great to the body. I don't know how God has equipped or enabled you and I don't know what part of the body you you may represent. Maybe you're just a big toe. Then you know what, praise God for you. It helps us all to stand But whatever role you play, whatever part you represent, know this, that God has brought us together in this place as a local church for the profit of all. That's verse number seven. One another serving and blessing each other in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is good. The church, unity, and diversity. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for the clarity of this scripture. It's familiar to us. It's memorable to us. We've, we've read it many times. It's been taught and preached from this pulpit many times. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and protect us from an inferior spirit, an insignificant spirit, or an independent spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be fascinated with one part or another, but rather that we would be careful to preserve the unity of the body in this place. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.